0: Okay, let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for this beautiful day. We're so thankful for the rain which you have sent our way, for the way it has been coming down steadily and gently, and Lord, we know that this is a provision from your hand, and we trust you to continue to send the rain. We know, Lord, that you allow the rain to fall and the just and the unjust alike. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you care for your people. And even for those, Lord, who have not turned to your name, we pray that in it all you will be glorified. Now, Father, be with us in these moments we share together from the book of Genesis. We ask that your book, your words, will be living and powerful in each of our hearts, that you will change us by the strength and the power of the Spirit of God who dwells within every believer. Lord, we know you're here in our midst this morning because of the promises of Scripture. So we trust you to open our eyes that we might see and our hearts that we might understand, that we might better serve you and be molded in the image of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading Genesis chapter 1 beginning at verse 20. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in, open, in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. We've looked at the creation as it has gone through the first four days. We've now arrived at the fifth day. It's interesting, of course, to note that it was on the third day that God created the plant realm, obviously essential for things we'll be reading in the next few verses as to the development of life on earth. Now on day five, the world is prepared for the animal realm, and so we have the animals created that would inhabit the atmosphere and the hydrosphere, the water bodies of the earth and, of course, the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. And we read in this passage that the air and the water basically suddenly swarmed with fully developed creatures. Certainly the invertebrates. We think of a lot of those things. If you've ever been to a tide pool and you look in there and you look at all the little creatures in there, you, you see many of the invertebrates. The fish, the sea mammals, the reptiles, the birds, possibly even flying insects were included at this particular time. Now it's very important to note, this is not the result of a lightning strike in a primordial sea. It's not the result of this, this undirected energy in this soup of chemicals, which supposedly formed amino acids, which supposedly form proteins, which supposedly form cells ad infinitum until here we are, huh, folks. The term in this passage that we read this morning, which is translated living creatures in verses 21 and 20 and 21, means a being with conscious existence. Plants are living, but plants don't live in the way animals live. They have a life, and they're able to reproduce and grow, but they have no consciousness of their existence, in spite of the cartoons where the trees talk to each other. And of course, the passages in Scripture where it says the trees of the field clap their hands—that's obviously a, a statement of, uh, um, you know, illustration. It's not a statement that the trees literally do that. God is thus adding a new dimension here to the universe, to to this world which He is creating. He is adding conscious existence. In verse 21, we see an interesting statement. It says that God created the great sea monsters. The Hebrew here is a word that is commonly translated serpent and uh, dragon. It is in some passages translated whale, but there seems to be uh, no real support, as I understand anyway, for that being a, a common translation it seems to refer to some kind of a large reptile or reptilian-type creatures that were created and and, live and lived in the sea, uh, probably even the extinct forms. Now, if, you're, if you've done a lot of reading, you know that, uh, for example, in 1977, the Japanese, as they were fishing off the coast of New Zealand, caught in their net a very, very large creature. It was dead at the time that they caught it in their nets, but they hauled it on board their ship. It was a fishing ship, and uh, they, I saw a photograph of the thing hanging uh, above the deck of the ship, and it had a very, very strange form. It didn't look like any creature I'd ever seen before. And on board, there was a naturalist, and he took all the measurements of the thing. It was 30 feet long. It had no dorsal fin. It was ba- It was not a fish. Uh, It had a long neck with a head on it, and it had a big body with big flipper-like things, four of them on its body. And the thing weighed 4,000 pounds. As the evidence was taken back to Japan, the Japanese scientists were absolutely convinced it was a plesiosaur, an animal which has theoretically been extinct for 70 million years. And American scientists, of course, have refused to accept that that's what it was. They, of course, didn't see it. Uh, but they won't accept it. They call it some kind of a shark or some other thing, but uh, this simply illustrates that uh, there are some creatures still living that possibly fit with the uh, skeletons of what are called dinosaurs. If you've followed along, you know that the sealenth was discovered way back in the 1930s. They'd only seen it in the rocks before, the, the, the great lungfish, and they've caught dozens of them now in more recent times, exact replicas of things in the rocks which they claim are 100 million years old. It probably is true that when God created the great creatures at the time of creation, it included beings that don't exist anymore, the great dinosaur-type creatures which we find in the rock record. As in the case of the plants, it says very specifically here that the animals which were created were created after their kind and they would reproduce after their kind. Thus, built into the DNA, the very core of the genes that are on the chromosomes in the being of each creature, was a code written. And that code, of course, would determine what kind of replication would take place. And into that code were built the possibilities for differences, for variations, but there were certain uncrossable limits. And these are the kinds of Genesis. Exactly where they fit in, we've talked about that before. We don't even know exactly where they fit in. They seem to fit in sort of at the family level of the kingdom, phylum, order, class, family, genus, species setup that's based on Linnaeus' taxonomy. Remember, we talked about that before. Now, for example, there is a creature we all aware, are aware of called the shark. Some people are more aware of it than another than others. If you've gotten the most recent Reader's Digest, you'll read a, a rather terrifying account of one man's encounter with a shark. But uh, sharks have existed for as long as we've known, the seas, and the rock records indicate sharks have been around a long time. They come in many varieties. There are the great whites, of course, which are the most fearsome as far as we're concerned. There are the blues, the seven-gill, the uh, six-gill, the gray sharks, the basking sharks, the nurse sharks, the thresher sharks. You know, on and on it goes, it seems. But they have one thing in common. They're all sharks. They've never been anything else but sharks, and they'll never be anything else but sharks. They have never become manta rays or moray eels. They're always sharks. They've always been sharks. And if you were to study the the fossil record, and uh, a man by the name of Duane Gish has a book called, uh, originally called, The Fossil Record Says No. It's been changed, I think, the title uh, to some other title. But basically, he argues in there that the fossil record denies the very thing that the evolutionist claims the rock fossil record supports. Because there is never any time in any place in the fossil record a single transition fossil between kinds. There is never a creature that's part shark and part something else. They're always sharks. They're always horses. They're always whatever. They're never something in between. And every creature that's been pointed to as a transition fossil is obviously a creature in and of its own that could survive within a particular environment and could not survive if it were to be modified. As we talked about before, have you, can, can you imagine a creature that is no longer fully fish but isn't yet amphibian? It's somewhere sort of in between. Its fins are partly feet but they aren't really good feet and they aren't good fins. Is that an advantage? How would such a creature find an advantage in life? Theoretically, evolution comes because of beneficial mutations, and the creature finds a certain uh, structure that gives it an advantage over others. But how could something partway in between be advantageous? It couldn't walk very well, it couldn't swim very well. Obviously, it would be at a disadvantage. And even evolutionists will admit that you know 999 mutations out of 1,000 are detrimental. My argument would be uh, 1,000 out of 1,000 would be probably detrimental, if that's what we're talking about. So there is no such thing as a transition fossil, and anything that's pointed to, like Archaeopteryx, which is supposedly a creature which is part bird, part lizard, is obviously fully a bird. It's not a lizard of any way, shape, or form and uh, something that's halfway between a lizard and a bird, how would that be an advantageous advantageous situation? It doesn't really make any sense. So the wide variety of complex forms that you and I see go all the way back to the beginning of the fossil record, at the point where the Precambrian and the Cambrian meet in the fossil record. Uh, You have an explosion of life forms there, and you find that uh, all the major... Uh, Kingdoms, phylums, and classes, phyla, and classes exist all the way back to the very, very beginning of the rock record. If you could put the rock record together that way. As I said before, it's an artificial composition. We read in verses 21 and 22 that not only did God call his creation good, but it says he blessed them. This is the first appearance in Scripture of the Hebrew word barak, which is translated bless. Now, in the Old Testament, wherever the word bless shows up, I understand anyway, when it's associated with God, it has to do with endowing one with power for the existence in this life, and often includes longevity, Uh, and uh, fertility, and the kinds of things that enable the being to be prosperous in this life. If God blesses, we are blessed, right? Of course, in this case, we're talking about animals, not talking about people. So this blessing, when it comes to the birds and and the sea creatures here, implies their ability to multiply in variety and numbers, and to fill the whole earth. And as I implied before, I believe that the ability to vary allowed the creatures to multiply into the numerous, what we call, species today, from the kinds of Genesis. And I don't think the, the, the variety is very great. I mean, you look at the human race, there's no way to deny that the human race has varied I mean, how can anybody possibly deny that? Adam and Eve were single individuals. They had to have a certain uh, appearance. They had to be of, of certain physical structure and hairstyle and, well, not style, but hair type and uh, facial features and so forth. They, they couldn't have been all at once. And, and it's been through the centuries and the millennia of reproduction that mankind has been able to vary into the full spectrum that you find the human race today, from pygmies to Watuzis. You know? I mean, after all, there are some people in the world who relatively, I mean, the whole race of those people are, are very, very short. And then there's another race where they're very, very tall, you know, where the average male is six, six and the average female is six foot, you know? Some of them come over and play NBA basketball, you know? <laughs> So you can obviously see where that same kind of variety would be built into all of the creatures. And so if you find an animal which is called a sparrow, you find a song sparrow and an English sparrow, and I I don't know how many varieties of sparrows. If there's an ornithologist here, you probably know. There are a lot of varieties of sparrow. But it's all a sparrow. And I believe that was all put there by God. And that's part of this blessing with which he blessed the animals to multiply and to variegate as they would on the surface of the earth. And that variegation has been misinterpreted by those who do not want to be responsible to a sovereign God to mean that these creatures have evolved from a lifeless sea into the variety that we find today. Now, this blessing implies, of course, that God cares for the animals that live on the surface of the earth. And I I believe that fully. There are passages of Scripture in the Old Testament which indicate that men and women are supposed to not mistreat their animals, particularly their horses. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, we read a well-known passage, the point of which, of course, is that God wants us to not be anxious about our needs because God is supplying those needs. And then he uses as an illustration in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That is, God has provided for their sustenance. God has blessed them. And part of that blessing has been provision for them. Now, that's not to say that no living creature has ever starved to death. They've starved to death by the millions but in the general sense, God has provided. And had the world not been, had not suffered uh, the contagion of sin, then every animal would have always been fully provided for and no animal would have ever starved to death. But because of sin and the fall and the chaos that came out of that, then all kinds of tragedy comes into the world, not only for the human race, but also for the animals of the world. Matthew 10 Verse 29. Again, just an illustration within a statement that Jesus is making. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. In other words, God knows about all of the creatures of the world today. And This must not be interpreted as a statement of pantheism. It simply is a statement of the care of God. He cares about all of these creatures. It reminds me of the, of the Roman senator who thought he was so wise. He had, trapped, he had caught a bird, and he had it in his hands. And he put a question to another person as he held this bird in his hands. He wanted to trick this other individual to, to prove that he couldn't always answer the questions correctly because he was jealous of this other senator. So he had this bird in his hands. And he said to this other person, Is the bird dead, or is the bird alive? And the other man said as thou will, <laughs> as thou will. God provides for all. God cares for all. And yet in the world today, as we know it, tragedy does exist. This blessing upon the animals, however, must not be confused nor equated with God's blessing upon mankind. Because God's blessing upon mankind is very, very special and different. Because his blessing upon us includes a personal relationship with God, a conscious knowledge of his existence. Now, the very existence of the, of the animal realm is testimony to the glory of God. But I think we'd have a hard time supporting the idea that every bird consciously knows of the existence of God and every worm and, and every fish. But you and I can talk with God, our Father, and we can have communion with Him, and that's a special blessing. God's blessing includes spiritual life, which we have and the animals do not have. It includes eternal life, which we look forward to with great anticipation, I trust. Now, considering the variety of the creatures God made, Matthew Henry makes an interesting comment. He says this, The curious formation of the bodies of the animals, their different sizes, shapes, and natures, with the admirable powers of the sensitive life with which they are endued, when duly considered, serve not only to silence and shame the objections of atheists and infidels, but to raise high thoughts and high praises of God in pious and devout souls." Every human being that walks the surface of this planet is a biased creature. There is no such thing as non-bias. That's one of the things I I try to point out in my particular area of of, uh, teaching at the college, that in the presentation of history, there's bias. (laughs) You read Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars, and there's bias there. He's trying to cover his, quote, tail, as you might say today, to cause everybody to realize that uh, he did a good thing here. And as people look at the fossil record or the living creatures, whatever is their prejudice to begin with shows up in their interpretation. You and I, we look at the variety of life out there and we praise God for what he has done. Others look at it and say, there is no God. These things have all just evolved. And we're the peak of that great evolutionary pyramid. The premise from which we start determines our interpretation. And this over and over shows up if you look at the study of modern science. Many of the earlier scientists and, and of course, many of the modern scientists today who are evangelical Christians have a completely different viewpoint of the fossil record and of the development of life in the earth. And it's not because they've all gotten together and say, well, we're all going to be fighting fundies and we're only going to interpret it this way because that's what we insist upon. No, they're scientists and they go out there and they look at it and they're not afraid to expose truth for what it is. You'll really discover that the most closed-minded are those who are committed to the evolutionary position and refuse to accept any other possible evidence. It's really a religion. I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that it isn't only in our daily walk and struggles with with maybe our boss or our teacher or whatever it happens to be, in which we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual principalities and powers, but even in this realm, in every realm, God's people wrestle not with flesh and blood. And so the struggle between the creationist point of view and the evolutionary point of view is not really a struggle based on evidences which exist. It's a spiritual warfare that's going on. It's the anti-God position against the pro-God position, if you will. And there is a great tension there not based upon the facts of reality. There's a passage in... Ma- in uh, Psalm 104, Matthew Henry uh, refers to this verse in light of the statement I just read to you. Psalm 104, verses 24 and 25. O Lord, how many are thy works? In wisdom thou hast Made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without numbers, animals both small and great. God was as aware of the plankton which floats in the sea as he was of the great whale which swam in the sea and scoops up thousands of tons of that plankton every day. Great and small, God is aware of it all. That God's blessing upon the creatures of the air and the sea was permanent is emphasized by the command that he gave to Noah in chapter 8, verse 17. Bring out with you every living creature of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God's continued blessing upon the animal realm in their multiplication and their variegation on the surface of the earth. right, we're on the top now of page 7 of your outline. The sixth day. Let's look at verse 24 of Genesis Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, And beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Thank God, huh? And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold... I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The crowning day of creation. God began this day with the creation of the land animals. As He had created the first portion of the biosphere before, when He had uh, created the uh, plant kingdom, and then He had created the sea and air creatures, and now He adds the land animals, the air and the water were swarming. Could you imagine what that must have been like? If you could have stood on the edge of the sea and looked into the sea and looked into the air and none of the creatures would have been afraid of man, the fish would have come, the birds would have come. I mean, it would have been a delightful situation, as if everything was a pet. And now God covers the land with varieties of animals and also insects, each after its kind. Now, I think originally the insects were probably good things. They argue today that there probably are something like 30 million species of insects. Around the world. And of course, as they probe through the Amazon basin and the jungles of Inner New Guinea, they keep coming up with new species they didn't know existed before. And of course, that's one of the reasons they're really against the destruction of the rainforest, is because they feel that they're losing species before they even discover them. And many scientists are very um, disturbed about that, and rightfully so. Because I believe that the variety that's out there is a testimony to who God is. He is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely glorious. And this is just an example. <laughs> Have you ever? I, I don't find the study of insects particularly appealing. But if you do look at the variety, you look at all these intricate structures. You know, from insects that are grossly huge, you know, insects that weigh many ounces apiece. <clears throat> To little bitty things we're told that are floating around in the air and we breathe them in all the time you know mites and other kinds of things <laughs> but it does illustrate to us how glorious God really is and I don't think any of those insects were detrimental to us in the beginning I think they were all they all fit into a perfect plan that God had created where they all functioned together and they were all mutually beneficial one to the other and it's the fall that caused the beginning of the harm that would come about. I don't think mosquitoes were a problem before. Now, whatever was around that might have been the ancestor of the mosquito probably drank from an apple or something instead of from you and me. Notice the breakdown in verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. Uh, these categories are, I guess you could call it, the first breakdown of land animals. And, and it would be as men would perceive them. First you have the cattle. And this probably refers to all the types of animals which would ultimately be domesticated by man. Not only the bovines, but uh, the, the goats and the sheep and the pigs and, and uh, the camels and, and all these other you know, horses types of animals would fit, I believe, uh, in this category of cattle. And then secondly, the creeping things, the animals that move close to the earth, I think doesn't just mean insects and reptiles, but I think also means the the smaller mammals and, and creatures of this kind. All the little furry things and scaly things and All the bugs that would run around over the surface of the earth were probably categorized here. And then lastly, the beasts of the earth. This probably referred to the larger animals, mostly the mammals uh, which existed, and and possibly the dinosaurs too. They have to fit in someplace. I do not believe, as some have said, that the dinosaurs were put in the rocks by Satan to trick people into believing in evolution. (laughs) Uh, I think that (laughs) there are those who have actually said that. I believe the dinosaurs th- were real. <laughs> they were creatures that lived on the earth. And uh, even though the, the background, the environment that's been created for them, and that is the uh, chronological environment, I think is totally false, uh, nevertheless, they really did exist on planet earth. And they truly were obviously the beasts of the earth, no doubt about it. But those early ones would not have been dangerous. Now we see all these stories, cartoons or whatever, about Tyrannosaurus Rex running around with blood dripping off its teeth, you know, chasing everything alive. If there was a, such a thing as Tyrannosaurus Rex at the time that we're talking about and it existed at the time man did, he was probably a friendly creature. And you probably could have taken a ride on him <laughs> if you wanted to. They're changing things. You've heard probably that some scientists now today are arguing that many of the dinosaurs were not cold-blooded after all, but were warm-blooded. See, what do they really know? There's a lot they don't know. They're surmising on what evidences they find in the rocks, and that's not much. I had a dinosaur bone one time. I left it in a, in a laboratory, and it kind of disappeared. But uh, over in Utah, there's a huge... Uh, formation that runs across Utah called the Morrison Formation, and it's full of dinosaur bones. And we went out there one day, and I got my own dinosaur bone. It was a big old honking thing. Uh, You know, dinosaurs were real. Like the animals of the air and the sea, it's important to note that the land animals were composed of the elements and the compounds that you find in the rocks of planet Earth every part of every creature can be broken down into its primary elements and compounds. And they are comprised of the, nat- of the 92 naturally occurring elements. You'll find carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and all these different elements from the atmosphere and from the hydrosphere and from the lithosphere uh, comprising you and me. You've probably read the little anecdote, you know, uh, if we were to be boiled down to our basic elements. We'd be worth ninety-five or <laughs> some tiny amount of uh, money. Uh, that we are primarily water. And, and one time I referred to that as the fact that we're all living swamps. And the particular people who were listening to <laughs> didn't particularly appreciate that analogy too much. But in a way, that's really what we are, because we're mostly water. But we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, as God Said. But I think it's very important to note that although the plants and the animals are comprised of these inorganic elements in and of themselves, (laughs) inert in many ways, these creatures that we're reading about here possess that unmeasurable and elusive quality called conscious life. The Hebrew here. Uh, can literally be translated as living, breathing soul. As such, the word soul implies that the animals are conscious creatures, but we should not interpret the word soul in this context in the metaphysical sense of an eternal soul such as man has. That, that, That living, breathing, conscious producing element in animals is at a very, very low level. It, it does not include the soul, which can reach out to the God of heaven and be in actual, verbal, intellectual communion with him. Animals do not have eternal life. I'm really sorry for those of us who happen to be dog or cat lovers or fish lovers or whatever, but there's no scripture to support eternal life for animals. But man has that particular characteristic of the soul. Now, God called his creation good. In fact, at the end of the chapter, he calls it very good. To me, that absolutely rules out any possibility of the concept of the survival of the fittest, of natural selection of the great raging war that goes on out there today in this world of creature eating creature, and the strongest survive and the weakest get eaten. That wouldn't be good. That would be awful. And yet God calls it good. The massive slaughter which is required by evolution I, you've seen the little slogan. It appears in some people's T-shirt, something about billions of living things, implying billions of living things that are seen in the rocks. You know, cannot imply what evolutionists attempt to say it implies. But this vast slaughter which would be required could hardly be called good. Now, I'm not saying that this awful slaughter isn't going on now. It is going on now. But it wasn't in the beginning, and that's the point. God did not create a world in which the largest ate the smallest and the slowest were eaten by the fastest. This mass extinguishing of life, which is what death is, is the extinguishing of physical life, as we're talking about it here anyway, did not begin until after the fall. Some of you may have read uh, C.S. Lewis's book, *Perelandra*. If you haven't, I recommend it to you. It's, it's science fiction. This is true. But he deals with the deep theology of this first chapter, two or three chapters of Genesis. And if you read it, you see this man was able to probe into this in a way that many of us have never even begun to think about it. In trying to see what are all the implications of a perfect world. And, and he does it so... so graphically in Perlandra. Notice in verse 30 that it says something very, very interesting, which again, I believe, precludes the concept of the survival of the fittest. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. Everything was herbivorous. Every creature was a herbivore. There were no carnivores, nothing eating another animal. Everything ate plants. Everything ate plants. Not only you, I mean, not only Adam and Eve, but all of the creatures of the world ate plants. You see, plants had no conscious existence. They were there to provide food. They're pretty, and they grow nice flowers, and luscious fruit. But that doesn't mean we should be concerned about their destruction in being eaten. You know, most of us, when we eat into an apple, don't say, oh, I'm really sorry about this, you know. We just eat it, and we're thankful. Now, when all was ready, and the earthly paradise was complete, God created mankind. God created man and woman. Now, why did God create man last? Why didn't he create him first and get rid of all this foolishness? Because he could have seen it happen. Well, of course, Moses did see it happen, didn't he, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the time that he penned Genesis. Oh, I'm sure he wouldn't have been believed anyway. But God created him last. And I have put on, yeah, I've put on the outline in three A one and two, what I think are at least two reasons why God created man last. Man was God's crowning achievement. It was the high point of God's creative act, was to create mankind, men and women. God made them in his own image he says that about no other creature he doesn't say i created the apple tree in my image or or the shark in my image or the ostrich in my image but men and women only created in the image of god the crowning event of god's creation week and then secondly god had prepared the world first, so that when he put man into it, man would stand there and say, O Lord my God, how wondrous is all thy works. As he would look through the garden and across the world as much as he could see and just give praise to a God who would make something so beautiful, so solicitous, so absolutely perfect, so that man could run around stark naked in the garden. And not have to worry about chiggers and mosquitoes and and slithering serpents well one but that one you didn't have to worry about at that time anyway or whatever it was um, and it wasn't too hot it wasn't too cold I mean remember when it was night Adam was still naked <laughs> so the nights were nice the days were nice it was always nice and 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 the rocks must have all been smooth I mean, it was a perfect world. Can you imagine how lush the grass was? You could sit in it without ants crawling all over you. or at least, maybe they were friendly ants. I don't know, but they weren't any problem uh, to him. As we think of the absolutely wondrous environment which God created for Adam and Eve, I don't think there's anything wrong with letting your imagination run. Just, Just sit down and think. What kind of an environment could God have created? I mean, we look at the beautiful things which exist today. The flowers that grow in your garden, as long as you don't look too close, they're, they're really beautiful. Maybe some of you grow beautiful flowers even up close. Uh, and, and the luscious fruit that can be produced, and, and the green grassy fields. And we think, in the perfect world, Everything would have been richer in color and fuller in flavor and without anything to be afraid of or anything to cause harm. When we think about that, I think it gives us a little better understanding of Jesus' words in John 14, 6, where he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, sometimes when we, we read that passage, it says mansions, and we have this kind of sterile idea that God is going to create this this stony place, you know, with marble floors and and Corinthian columns and we're going to live in this mansion? I don't think so. I think that's a figure of speech of of a glorious world that God is creating, a world that will be as exquisite or more so than the world in which he placed Adam and Eve. I think it'll be a world filled with flowers and trees. And of course, in, in Revelation, it does talk about trees and fruit and so forth I I think we're going to be able to fly through the universe to visit the various planets or whatever he creates out there in the new heaven I don't think we're gonna be walking around clanking our shoes on sterile streets of gold I think we're gonna be living in a wondrous place far beyond our imagination in fact that's, that's the inference there in 1 Corinthians 2.9. That's a passage we're all familiar with. Just as it, is writ- as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I think that goes beyond... God's walking with you today and meeting your needs and blessing you today. I think it it refers also to the eternal blessing that we will have in God and the wondrous world he has created for us. Personally, I love waterfalls. I could sit all day by a waterfall. I think the new heavens are going to be filled with waterfalls some so high that they seem to disappear into the clouds, if there are clouds. (laughs) Just wondrous things. Whatever it is that we enjoy, I think it'll be there in abundance. Not to the point where we become surfeited by it. I don't think we'll ever be satiated. I think it'll always be wonder and awe and drawing us on to the next wonderful thing that God has created for us. And I think this passage in Genesis is here recorded for us partly so that we will look forward to what he's going to do for us or is doing for us. That this perfect world is simply a sampling of what eternal life is really going to be like. There's all this baloney about sitting on a cloud and playing on a harp, you know. That's Satan's invention because that sounds pretty dull <laughs> to everybody that I've ever talked to about it. But here we have a glimpse, I think, not only of God's incredible power to create, but his desire to produce an exquisite environment for his people. How much much does God love us? Well, we know he loves us enough that he sent his only son to die for us. And if he loves us that much, he certainly will use his creative powers to produce a world beyond our ability to conceive so exquisite will it be that you and I could not even experience the reality of the new heaven and the new earth in these crippled bodies which we have and these sin-damaged minds which we have. Our senses have been so dulled, some of us more than others, (laughs) that we couldn't even begin to experience the glory of what God is making for us and thus he's going to give us what? New bodies, new minds, perfect minds and perfect bodies. Oh, praise God. None of us will have warts where we don't want them and none of us will be too tall or too short or too wide or too thin. We'll all be perfect and we'll all see each other as perfect and we'll love each other perfectly and we'll all love each other in this perfect world. In this passage in Genesis, one of the key verses is verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We have at least three things here in this passage. A statement that Elohim, I believe it's a reference to the uniplural Godhead or Trinity, working in unison to produce mankind. Secondly, in this passage, we discovered that man was created in the image and the likeness of Elohim. And thirdly, that man was to rule over all the animals of the land, the sea, and the air. And that doesn't mean rule over them as he tries to rule over them now. Where man butchers life out there, intentionally, unintentionally. Uh, where, uh, you know, we mistreat pets and so forth. I, I don't think that's what it means at all. I think what it means to rule over them It means that man had dominion and all the animals understood this and there was not a single animal in air, sea, or land that was a threat to Adam and Eve. Not a single one. Well, sure, if Adam had, you know, laid down someplace and and an elephant had laid on him, that would have been a threat, but that wouldn't have happened because there was no death in that perfect world. Now, first of all, Elohim said, let us make man in our image. To whom was God speaking when he said, let us make man in our image? Now, there have been a lot of different answers to this question. Some have said he was speaking to the angels. Let us make uh, man in our image, angels. Some say that he was speaking to his creation, Let's make man fitting, or in the image of the world in which he is created. And, you know, in a sense, that's, I suppose, true. We have arms, we have legs, we have fingers, we have eyes, we have ears, as the animals do. Others say, no, no, he was speaking in the plural of majesty. As the king would say, we pronounce the death sentence upon you. (laughs) Meaning himself, but spreading out the blame a little. Very interesting. To this, John Calvin makes a very, very pointed statement. The Jews make themselves altogether ridiculous. Now, one of the things you need to know about John Calvin was he wasn't uh, guarded often in his speech. He, he tended to be very pointed in the things that he said. says. And you'll notice this as, as, we, as I read this statement. The Jews make themselves altogether ridiculous in pretending that God held communion with the earth or with angels. The earth, forsooth, what an excellent advisor. (laughs) (laughs) And to ascribe the least portion of a work so exquisite to angels is a sacrilege to be held in abhorrence. Where indeed will they find that we were created after the image of the earth or of angels? Does not Moses directly exclude all creatures in express terms when he declares that Adam was created after the image of God? Others who deem themselves more accurate but are doubly infatuated say that God spoke of himself in the plural number according to the custom of princes, as if that barbarous style of speaking which has grown into use within the past few centuries had even then prevailed in the world. Now notice this next statement but it is well that their canine wickedness has been joined with a stupidity so great that they betray their folly to children. Christians, therefore, properly contend from this testimony that there exists a plurality of persons in the Godhead. As I noted to you, Calvin's not noted for his delicacy in dealing with those who are in a... Uh, uh, opposition to his opinions. From this passage in Genesis, I believe it's quite clear that the triune God was expressing agreement in the creation of mankind. This relationship within the Trinity can be illustrated by other passages, and I've just put down three uh, just to look at briefly to illustrate this. Matthew, chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This this absolute intimate relationship between the Father and the Son goes far beyond the idea that Jesus was simply one of the great teachers that God established. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world, which is not giving a statement of time, but is a statement of eternity." And then finally, and most pointedly, the passage in Hebrews chapter 1, which you probably have found, as I have, is one of the most devastating when working with the Jehovah's Witnesses as they come to your door. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? I think scripture is replete from Genesis to Revelation with implications direct and indirect of the existence of the triune God, working in concerted effort to bring about the creation of the world, the redemption of mankind, and the ultimate Uh, eternal situation as we see it drawn for us in Scripture. Well, I think that the time being what it is, we'll stop at that point on your outline. We'll pick up with the image of God next week. It'll take a few moments to look at that. It's a fascinating thing to think about what it really means to be created in the image of God. But we'll, uh, we'll do that We'll do that next week. <clears throat> First of all, I'd like for us to take a moment to pray and then John Keeney, oh, there he is, is going to come up and give us our missionary moment. First of all, uh, before we do that, are, are there any questions? I have lots of resources today in class. I have Dr. Walmart and, and Dr. Schaefer and Dr. Bullock and... All these people, Dr. Gordon, Brown. Can you turn your tape on? I haven't turned the tape on. Oh. I thought you might at the end of your sermon. No. thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to help you. Thank, I appreciate that. Without my wife here, I need all the help I can get. <laughs> Anybody? Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> As you've heard, that means two things, one of two things, right? Either you understood everything or you didn't understand anything, so. We'll hope it's the former, not the latter. Uh, if you were going to read just one book on a subject of evolution, what would Oh, my goodness. <laughs> just one book? <clears throat> oh, Mort, do you have a good idea? What would be the one book that uh, somebody should read on evolution if they only read one book? I, I've read so many that uh, so many of them are really good. Uh, evolution of uh, theory of crisis. Yes, I was going to say that. Do you recommend that one? Yeah. But you need a little scientific background. That's what a lot of us have is a little <laughs> scientific background. <laughs> <laughs> he's, not, uh, he's not a Christian. Ah, uh-huh. Dr. Henry Morris uh, is one of the most prolific writers along this line, and I don't know how many dozens of books he's written, but um, he's written one most recently I haven't had a chance to really look at, but I read some reviews on it called The Long War Against God, which is the story of of the crisis between evolution and creationism, and that might be a good one to The Long War Against God. It's uh, said, as I said, I've just read the reviews on it. I haven't actually had a chance to read the book. But it traces the whole story and deals, I think, with this principalities and powers, wrestling with, not with flesh, flesh and blood concept behind it all.